I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Mad Men, the TV show that ran from 2007 to 2015, created by Matthew Weiner. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So Mad Men is one of my favorite TV shows, and I've been wanting to talk about it for a very long time. So we just released a video on Mad Men that is talking about subtext and text and kind of symbolic imagery and how the show uses all these things to create these layers of meaning. Uh, And just to give everyone a heads up, if you haven't seen Mad Men, we're going to talk about everything. So if you want a completely spoiler-free experience, this might not be the episode for you. But as Alex has pointed out in our Slack, I feel like this isn't a TV show that you can like super ruin via spoilers, but that's up to you. Anyway, so yeah, Mad Men is great. And there's so much to talk about writing-wise. And people have been requesting it since the beginning of the channel. But Trisha, you were the one that pitched this video and this topic. Why did you want to talk about Mad Men and this topic in particular? Well, like you, Mad Men is one of my favorite TV shows ever. And for me, that's really saying something. I don't have a lot of excitement around TV, uh, especially back when this first started, where you like actually had to watch it every week. And it was sort of that like one of the last sort of holdovers of, of long form TV. And so it required this big, long commitment. And I really didn't watch it when it was on. But once it moved on to Netflix and I started in on it, I just fell head over heels for it because it checks so many of my boxes. Like it's a historical thing. It's this great ensemble cast with amazing dialogue. It's like really rich visuals and imagery. It's stunning, like well-designed characters. And of course it's stylish as hell. It just like goes through everything that I would want from a TV show. And it also spans a, a time period in history that has been written about quite a bit but it manages to stay really focused in its own world. And so the events that are taking place in history are are told through this very specific lens. It just does so much so well. And I was re-watching it when, after I started writing for the channel, because I was like, we absolutely have to do a Mad Men video. Um, and I was really struck by, in addition to all of the other things that I just named, the symbolism that this... TV series manages to utilize or really borrow and manipulate, borrow from American culture and then manipulate to create, you know, richer and richer meaning out of it. So that was what I originally pitched was focusing entirely on the symbols, but then we figured we couldn't do a Mad Men video without getting into the other layers of meaning that the show takes a lot of care to create. Right. Your pitch, Trish, of, of this idea of borrowing imagery and in, in, in hindsight, it's kind of so obvious in some ways because that's you know, it's dealing with advertising. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the the show is known more for its like subtext and how it's a show where people have these facades and how that's disguising the inner self. And that's kind of always the thing that I had uh, thought about when watching it. But that idea of that they're literally using the advertising imagery and all this stuff to support all that thematic um, content was really interesting. Um, and so really quickly, I just want to... So I encountered Mad Men when... I think I watched the pilot live on TV wow. and that's a thing that has happened very rarely. It has happened for the OC and <laughs> Mad Men for me. Prestigious group. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I saw this advertisement and it was like, you know, Elizabeth Moss from the West Wing who, you know, I loved yep. as Zoe on the West Wing. So I was like, oh, I'll watch this like new show. That's kind of like the West Wing. 
And <laughs> I, <laughs> just like the West Wing. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I watched it for the first time and found it just profoundly boring. I just couldn't <laughs> deal with it. Uh, and then later I went back and rewatched it and appreciated it and found it to be this this amazing thing that became one of my favorite TV shows. And I think that's an, an experience that a lot of people mm-hmm. have had. It's It's a show where I feel like it either clicks and you're really into it or not. And so I'm also curious, Alex and Brian, what your relationship with the show is, because I think that's one of the unique aspects of Mad Men is that it can be a, a different experience for everyone. Yeah. I, so I've I've watched the first like season and a half of Mad Men. I made it through like partway of season two. And then I've seen like scattered episodes past that point. And, you know, I I did actually like the pilot. I don't know if I, I may not, not have watched it until you recommended it, Michael, or maybe we were we were kind of studying it as like an example pilot for our own writing. But I definitely appreciated the pilot, and I thought it was a good, a, a, just a good example of a pilot of of a great mm-hmm. kind of almost like self contained story setting up this character in this world. Definitely. So yeah, the pilot I thought was very effective and 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 good. And for me, it, it was it was a challenge to stick with the show, especially getting into season two because I I. And maybe I had been watching it in a new context of like, you know, when it first came out, it was kind of coming off the heels of like Sopranos. And like it was like in the early days of this like prestige TV. Definitely. And mm-hmm. and there was still a feeling where like I I think I'd gotten like spoiled or used to more of a Netflix or HBO pacing mm. uh, of like, you know, 10 episodes or less or kind of like things are going somewhere like there's like a there's like kind of one big story that's being told here and we're like getting somewhere as it goes because you'd watched it you watched it later not when it was right coming like out. I, yeah, I was yeah. watching Mad Men in, in a different context than when it first was released and mm-hmm. so when you know I think somewhere in season two when you know Betty was like riding horses every episode <laughs> and like <laughs> flirting with a stable boy and I'm like I don't know where this is going like she's still riding horses and you know I was like this doesn't it's hard to invest my time into a show right. on Netflix right now when I don't sense that it's like narratively going anywhere in particular. It's just kind of, you know, I don't know. We're just kind of floating mm-hmm. along in this world. So I, that's where I kind of I, I bounced and I, I didn't continue with it. But for this podcast and for this video, revisiting certain key episodes like The Wheel, the season one finale, and then I also watched The Suitcase at Michael's recommendation from season four. And and I watched the finale of the whole series. I really liked those episodes. And I thought mm-hmm. uh, they were really... Uh, I could see how, like, being along th- with these characters for the span of that entire journey would be a really satisfying experience. Um, I just couldn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like, like, seasons two and three, maybe even, or, like, not the fun ones in my head. Like, I feel like when it gets later in the 60s and they like kind of start their new company, right. there's like a new kind of momentum that gets injected right. and then it's more fun. Yeah. But yeah, Brian, what about you? I think I came to it from the opposite end as from Alex, which is I had watched Breaking Bad and started watching Walking Dead. And I was like, I really like that AMC is doing this long form storytelling where we're telling a story slowly. I still feel like when you tell a story slowly, every episode has to still feel like its own thing, which Mad Men absolutely does. But I was very much ready for another 
long form series that went on for years that I was always following. So I watched, I started in when it was maybe three seasons in and I was able to just binge it over the course of a few days because it's, I found it very watchable. Um, And then I eventually caught up and then spent subsequent four years just watching week to week. And I had a lot of frustrations with the show. I think that it sets up this really strong Dramatic, dramatic question with the first episode, which is you introduce this playboy character and then you reveal at the end that he's actually married with kids. So then, of course, the show becomes how long is this character going to be leading this double life, which is mm-hmm. in many ways appropriate for exactly um, for who Dick Whitman slash Don Draper is. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think throughout the course of the series, it's like the answer to that question was not very long because then, you know, he gets uh, he gets divorced and then things happen. And I think I found for the majority of the series, I didn't have any one thing that was that I had to latch on to where I was just, mm-hmm. I can't wait for the next episode to see if X happens or I can't wait until this inevitable thing happens. Like I don't generally care if a character makes partner at their firm or whatever, because that to me is not <laughs> like the visceral kind of drama that I'm looking for. But there's a reason why I watched it for the entire series. You know, I, I definitely found it compelling and I really respect things like the production design and a lot of the symbolism. It's always fun when you can watch something and the first time through get those little yeah. those little things that they're peppering in. And plenty I didn't get, but plenty were there where I went, ah, clever. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think you're absolutely, both of you, Alex and Brian, are absolutely right that in many ways, this actually isn't the quote unquote prestige TV that we talk about now because it isn't one overarching story in terms of plot. Like the thing that unifies Mad Men as an entire series is theme. And it, it is this communal sense of storytelling that is united around a shifting American ideal, which is fairly complex. And so that is kind of what holds it together rather than any particular storyline or even any like one character arc. We do like really follow Don and we are interested in him and want to know what's going to happen with his marriage. What's going to happen with his family. Is he going to get found out? We actually get the answer to all of those questions, as you point out, Bri, very early. But we're still invested in the character. But that's not what holds bad men together. And so I think if you're talking about something like Breaking Bad, where there is a central tension and it's not really resolved until the very, very end of the series. That's more what we Mm -hmm. talk about when we're talking about this like prestige TV. And so the interesting thing that I think is that people were able to, maybe more so than a lot of these other shows, because there is so little plot to speak of, is a very, very popular show and critically acclaimed. People were able to tap into the thematic core of the story in a way that kept them watching, which is so actually kind of anomalous in terms of like the TV landscape. Sure. Right. Definitely. The style of the show was also a big part of that, too. Oh, just how sure. many people were right. like, I want to look like this. And, you know, for years, it 100%. just became that thing. Yes. Yeah. And I did know a lot of people that were like, I just love looking at yes. the costumes and the, mm-hmm. yeah, the show. So that was a big, a big hook for a oh, lot of people. Yeah. yeah. As you're saying, George, it, it exists almost in this weird in-between period mm-hmm. as we were kind of you know, the idea of prestige TV is a relatively new thing, like the mm-hmm. way we think about it now. And I think this, you know, the Breaking Bads and the Mad Men, like AMC kind of built that bridge that then like Netflix 
took over and like did its thing with. And so Mad Men is this kind of weird, like I, I think it's probably the last show that isn't a single plot line, like you're saying, that I've been invested in. And it's it's interesting because the only other shows that I watch that are like that are, uh, you know, comedies where it's like workplace right. drama. But right. this is like the last or workplace comedy, I guess, in that situation. And this is the last like workplace drama that I, I feel like I've been interested in and that exists. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it is kind of anomalous in all these different ways. And especially because of the time period that it it was released in. Yeah. And, and people got. And I, again, I'm a history nut and I primarily write historical dramas. So of course I was gonna love this probably, but it definitely did ignite an interest in, well, okay, is there another time period or can we like say something else about the sixties where studios were then looking for and networks were then looking for like, is there a cool, you know, show that's about a different time period or like Pan Am that tried to do the same thing with the 60s, but with the airline industry. Oh and God, that's uh, right. Wow. This kind of just hit the sweet spot because the nature of this particular workplace is also engaging with the theme and like what it's trying to say about these like American ideals, this image of the perfect happy family versus the like pain that's underneath, the war trauma that's underneath. Um, the like, yeah, toxic masculinity that's underneath all of this stuff. And so I think that it just managed to really capture something with a lot of thematic clarity because of how it was designed. That, that's something that I do. I, I, I'm learning to kind of appreciate more about the show because of uh, the process of working on this video, revisiting season one, uh, and kind of remembering like, oh, yeah, like what, what a genius, uh, concept to to set you know this this is a time period where nobody's really saying what they actually feel everybody's keeping secrets uh there's an ideal of what every man is supposed to be every woman's supposed to be every family's supposed to be and nobody can live up to those mm -hmm. ideals uh and you're going to set it you know it's going to be a workplace drama in the environment of advertising where we're creating symbols and images that are like probably misrepresenting the products and trying to like implant in your mind this ideal that doesn't even exist. And so that is a really just brilliant move, I think, on Matthew Weiner's part to to do all that at once, like set this workplace in this time period with yeah. these characters. Right. And also over the course of seven seasons, you get this shift. You You start in this very rigid sort of... Arthur Miller, death of a salesman uh -huh. kind of uh, mm -hmm. world. And then by the end, you're sort of more in like Woodstock territory and some of the characters are growing long hair and all this kind of thing. And not every character is okay with that, obviously. And that's part of Don's arc in the final episode. But, um, but it's just an interesting way to track not just these characters over a course of almost a decade, but to track life and America also. And like, what a decade to track, you know, right. like, like what, what bigger shift has there, has there been, you know, in the last 50 years? I mean, that's an insane decade of mm -hmm. as far as just culture changing. Yeah. Some of my favorite episodes are the ones that are dealing with the big things that happen, the big moments, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the moon landing and just all the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, like having all of that to work with as like background for the characters in your story, I think is, is you know, that's just an awesome grab bag of drama. Uh, but also I, I appreciated seeing those things 
through the perspective of people that weren't directly involved with it. It, it kind of gives this feeling of what what would it have been yeah. like to just be a normal, like, quote unquote, normal <laughs> TV show, people right. normal yeah. person living through that, or even like in the suitcase, the the Muhammad Ali fight versus Sunny Liston, like mm. all, all of those are cool to explore that history. But also, as you were saying in the beginning, Trisha, borrowing that imagery and what all of that means and has come to mean to use that in the story and affect the characters is just, I feel like when I'm watching a Mad Men, it's like something happens where I turn it on and I'm like, oh, all right, I'll watch a little bit. And then suddenly yep. 30 minutes have passed and I'm like, oh, I'm, I guess I'm watching Mad Men now. But also there are these moments where everything comes together and like all the layers, mm-hmm. like they all merge and this magic thing that is more than the sum of its parts happens. And it's this weird, it almost happens in slow motion. Like I feel like there's only a few times in the show yeah. where that happens, but because there's such a slow buildup that w- when it does happen, it's like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever experienced when it's like, oh, cool. They, they bought that ad agency. Like it's not that interesting, <laughs> but because of the investment, right? it's like, yeah. And so I feel like that's one, another just unique thing about the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It taps into this psychological tension between, like, how we present ourselves and how we really are, which is oversimplifying. But what I really mean is the thing that exists in the space between that, how we present ourselves and the quote-unquote how we really are, is this deep shadow that we can't see into of stuff that we don't know about ourselves. And so, which is really dark and interesting. And so the show deals a lot with this, like the way that we present ourselves on the surface, the way that people like Don, you know, like dresses to come to the office and he's got like a stack of shirts in his drawer and whatever. And then you see him going home to his family and, and we, uh, we see that there's like a reality to both of those things because they happen on screen. But the place between those things is somewhere where Don really lives. And he probably doesn't even realize he lives in there. He actually is a family man. We see that he loves his kids. That love is not fake. He loves Betty. That love is not fake either. We see that time and time again. At the same time, we see his total inability to be remotely faithful. (laughs) (laughs) I think I read an article that says he he, sleeps with 100 women over the course of Mad Men. Like if you just count them all up it's something insane which right. actually that checks out because there's 92 episodes so it's at least one per episode <laughs> with some being a few more <laughs> that feels like a lot i don't know but right wait yeah, yeah. how is that possible what? there are a few that last a couple episodes <laughs> i don't know someone, someone give me the actual math His second wife <laughs> yeah, comes to mind <laughs> but but we see that those two things exist in reality and yet there's this third in-between piece that explores this sort of psychological darkness of what Don doesn't know about himself, but is constantly seeking. And so when Don leaves on his road trips and like 
vanishes or goes to California to go see his <laughs> other family, um, who are not his family because they're the family of the people who, the person he stole his, his identity from. But when he's when he goes after that stuff, you see that he's kind of he's kind of trying to drive into that shadow to see what it is, and that's really compelling. Like I don't know if I can think of many movies or TV that are able to do that so effectively. And the long form of this is why we get enough of that. What is Don going to discover about himself? What is Peggy going to discover about herself or Roger or Joan? That's right. going to surprise them and us. Yeah. I feel like Peggy is extremely important yes. for the the show being great and yeah. lasting as long as it does. Cause I feel like for at, at some point I start tracking Peggy. When, when I think about Don Draper, I, there's this kind of like archetype that in some ways it's like embarrassing that I, I think is fascinating or just reveals, I guess, my socialization. But he's sort of like like a domestic James Bond, right, on one hand, right, where he has that like the swagger and the cool and sleeping with one woman per episode, like all those things. <laughs> but I feel like he also has this kind of like film noir like inner vulnerability mm. that also gets broken yeah. open. Yeah. And it reminds me of video game character Geralt of Rivia from The Witcher 3. I think it's mm. kind of this other archetype where on the surface, he's, you know, Geralt is like a monster hunter and I go and kill things and super masculine. But like underneath it, he's like, a you know, a teddy bear that has these complex relationships and there's all this emotion. And I feel like Don Draper is just such a well-rendered version of that mm. where on the outside he is you know, as we've been saying, this quote unquote ideal of what like, you know, masculinity and manliness is supposed to be. But then underneath it, he's broken yeah. in all these ways and wants to have all these things that like he's either not supposed to have or is supposed to have, but doesn't know how to because he hasn't been taught how to. And like, I just feel like that duality is powerful. And also, I think, is a reason why so many people can connect to him and, and become invested in mm -hmm. that story. Yeah, I, I think in a movie, you have two hours to take a character from being this uh, strong, silent, arm's length kind of person to revealing they have a heart of gold. And in a video game, you have maybe 20 hours or something. But in a TV show, you have a very long time to explore that and to sort of keep pulling on that string. I think Sherlock is a show that did that pretty well in the first couple seasons. Of all things, Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory was actually like <laughs> like 12 years of, of him sort of being like, I don't really know how to connect mm. to people. And then the sort of like, like pulling that thread and pulling that thread and sort of having him open up more and more. Um, so My I mother's think so happy right now that you that. <laughs> so <I> continue. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's a character trait we've seen a lot in the past decade and what that says about you know, America, I don't know, but it's sort of this character who is unwilling to open up, who very slowly over the, over the course of several seasons of a show is finally brought to this kind of human place. I don't know if that's true of Dawn, actually, because the show. Well, he, he almost does. Makes he, it. he tries. <laughs> I agree. Uh, my biggest problem with with this show was that I generally don't like Don Draper. Right. Um, and when I say like, I mean, I don't root for him or want him to get what he wants i should say not that i don't like him as a character or as john Hamm's performance or any of that stuff um the same time this show was on i was also watching weeds which is mm -hmm. another show that i enjoyed in the first few seasons and after a while i thought i with both don draper and Nat nancy botwin i thought i don't 
like this person. They just keep getting away with things and being sort of smarmy about it and not really getting punished for their actions. And I think that I do appreciate in the final episode of Mad Men, you have Don has this little monologue, you know, Peggy says, what did you ever do that was so bad? And he says, well, I did all these things. And she says, well, that's not that bad. I'm like, yes, it is. (laughs) Like we just spent seven years watching (laughs) him like (laughs) cheat on his family. Like this is a bad person. And I, I appreciate that Don is always struggling with that. And he always sort of maybe seems more comfortable with himself and underneath is always, you know, internally screaming. But, but I just, it's a show where I just wanted it to end with like, it's 2015. Don is 90 something (laughs) years old. He's sitting on a bench in central park. He sees some bizarre flashy billboard that completely baffles him. He calls Sally, his daughter on the phone. She doesn't answer. He tries to say something charming to a woman who walks by and she blows him off. And he's just left there like alone in this world that has kind of passed him by because I just felt like I did not see him suffer enough for some unexpected (laughs) moralizing from you, Brian Bittner. Whoa, take it easy. (laughs) I know. I mean, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I, I, I don't mind characters who are, you know, social network. Like I don't mind characters who are bad as long as I feel like they're unhappy. He is obviously (laughs) unhappy. He's pretty damn unhappy. (laughs) Yeah. Not enough. Not enough for me. But he does kind of keep, keep getting away with it. I feel like is probably the thing that I can get on board with. Like, I think the biggest moment for me was when Sally walked in on him and um, Linda Cardellini. Yeah. And I thought, okay, finally, here we go. And over the course of like an episode, it was resolved and moving on, you know, and, and weeds was much more guilty of that. I think where it was just like, Cause she was really smarmy about it where Don is not as smarmy, but I just sort of felt like every time I felt like the show was finally punishing uh, them by the next episode, they were kind of just back to, to normal. And I thought that's just for me personally was not what I wanted to see. I have a response to that, but I want to hear what Alex has to say. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily have the, like I needed him to be punished response, but I had the same kind of issue. And you know, part of the reason I dropped off of the show was I think with Mad Men, because there's not a central dramatic question of, you know, like Breaking Bad, where it's like, are they going to get away with everything? Then it does rely on you just being invested in the characters and just wanting to see what they do, period. And I didn't find myself having having that hook with any of the characters, really. Maybe later on I would have, but by the time I, I kind of bounced out of the show, uh, yeah, there wasn't that feeling of like, oh, I really want you to get the thing you're going for, or I really am interested to see like what you do next it was none of the characters grabbed me that way and that was that was a problem for me and and i think with don that was where it was too where i didn't really identify with don Mm -hmm. at all uh in any way so i so it was hard for me to be just like really riveted by his story and to know where it goes because there was no plot element of like gotta find out what happens next with don yeah i do feel like that's where later on because peggy takes a more center stage mm. role yeah. and Joan, like everybody else starts having things that are much more plot. That's like, can Peggy break in? Can she be the first female ad person in this agency? And like yeah. watching their rise is like the momentum that starts later on. Like, like I'm so right. much more into that than like, right. like Peggy gained a lot of weight and was like, oopsies pregnant, <laughs> I guess. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty bizarre for me i think peggy is the only character where i can sort of follow her over the course of the entire show and say i i always sort of see where she's going and like 
I see the shift from where she was previously and I'm happy about it. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that I want to say, but just I'll start with Peggy, which is that I absolutely agree with you, Michael. Without Peggy, this show does not work, is not fun. Like there's nobody to root for. Yeah. Don Draper is, I agree, Brian, morally reprehensible. I think his psychological darkness is to me punishment enough. Like he is so dissatisfied. I actually would almost argue that he's a sociopath in his own way where he doesn't really know how to connect to people and doesn't really know how to be vulnerable. And he's always sort of chasing that as an idea because he thinks it like will bring him fulfillment, but he's never able to achieve it because he ends up just whenever he finds a kernel of something real, he finds a way to market it. And I think that that steals any sort of catharsis out from his story. So there's that, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is designed to be dissatisfying. And your reactions to that effect are valid and probably what the show's creators are going for, Um, or at least I think is a happy byproduct, (laughs) even if it doesn't feel that way. (laughs) Uh, but, But Peggy is somebody that is very human and fully in touch with her feelings and really struggling with what is the right way to be? How can I chase my goal in a somewhat intelligent, compassionate, ethical way? Because we see time and time again where Peggy really wonders what the right thing to do is and sometimes sabotages her own career to do what's right. And the reason that the suitcase episode is so compelling is because that's what, or it's because it's right before she quits, isn't it, Michael? Or like a few episodes before she quits, I believe. I think, yeah, I think something like that. It's it's literally, if you divide the number of total episodes in half, uh-huh. <laughs> it is exactly the middle or midpoint episode of the whole series. Yeah, but but time and time again, we see Peggy put in a position <laughs> where her goals are at odds with the culture of the workplace, which is by nature, like sort of backstab your way to the top. And she wants to be a part of that. She wants to succeed within that. And yet she doesn't feel right or good about it. And that's why when she ends up having her child out of wedlock at the end of the first season, she's crippled by that fear of, having done the wrong thing, having made the wrong choice, um, having made the wrong choice nine months ago when she slept with Pete, right? But all of that knocks her into this like moral hole that she really struggles to find her way out of. And then we see this again and again in her storyline where she ends up in a relationship with Ted Shaw, who's married. She's like, what is the right thing to do here? Um, And then leaving the company and going to various different companies and all of this. So I think that, you have this counterpoint with Don who has an absolutely broken moral compass and nothing but moral darkness and Peggy who is really struggling to find her way to success while being moral essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I feel like it's, it's the, you know, the interplay between them where like she, she in some ways is trying yep. to be Don and trying to get, you know, the things that he has and that he just, you know, takes completely for granted and like you know will randomly bounce away to california for a little while like because that's what he can do 
and she's like fighting tooth and nail to get there. And I think that's, I think that's just an, a really interesting, it just creates this interesting dynamic because she's this person that wants what he has, but like you said, has a better moral compass and is like, you know, is a woman, isn't allowed. There's like a fight there's that yep. has to be earned and like all this stuff. And so it, it is interesting then by the end where it's like, she's gotten it and in, in a lot of ways and is the success, but now she's kind of done that thing that we talked about with like Captain America and Iron Man where she swung too far and like work is the only thing that yeah. matters. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's one of the things that bothers me about the ending a little bit is that there's, there's just not a whole lot of time for her to then like swing back. Like there's the like, oh, I guess actually we're in love and this, now we're a happy <laughs> ending like other ad person. And and I think it's like it's sweet and it's good. And I I, I like it. I think it's that, that thing. It's almost like the Game of Thrones thing, Game of Thrones thing, but not as bad where it's like it's rushed a little bit for mm-hmm. me. It is definitely a little rushed. Yeah. And I also just wanted like one more scene with her and Don on screen. Like I'm so upset oh, that their yeah. final mm-hmm. conversation is a telephone. Like it makes sense. But right. I see them on screen again. Anyway, sorry, Brian. Yeah, I do appreciate in the suitcase episode, you have this sort of non-romantic romance between the two of them. And I love that. (laughs) And I wish I wish there was more of that in um, in shows, because especially TV shows, you eventually as well, which characters haven't slept with each other yet. So I guess we have to make that happen because we're running out of stuff to do. And I (laughs) and I love whenever you see two characters who just who just uh, love each other and care about each other. And that's all there is to it. but yeah, my my comment about Dawn's sort of lack of enough uh, comeuppance was from your comment, Tricia, which was about him sort of not quite maybe going far enough to admission in the final episode where it, where it sort of felt rushed to me. It's, it's kind of the Kylo Ren problem where it's like in 10 minutes, you're going to say all the terrible things these characters have done are fine because they have repented for it over the course of a scene and now it's fine and they are allowed to be happy. And I'm like, eh, I need, I need it to be more earned than that. I think that's not how I read the ending at all. I read the ending as being yet another beginning of a cycle of Don dives deep into himself, finds something real in there and then finds a way to package it and market it the same way that he does in the wheel where, and the same way that he tries to do with the Hershey's pitch, which goes quite badly, but yeah, it's this, I think that that whole, the finale for Don is just here we go again. We don't see Don go back, but we do hear it in that final episode. I think it's Stan that says like, you know, he always does this. He always does this and he always mm-hmm. comes back. Right. He'll be back. That kind of sense. And Roger is obviously operating on the assumption that he'll be back. And in a way, Peggy is too. Like she sort of hopes he can escape from it, but she also assumes he'll be back. And that's the implication with the Coca-Cola commercial at the end. And so. <laughs> Sure. I think that there that is Don's comeuppance is that he is still in the cycle. He's still right on the carousel. Sorry. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Wow. Wow. You're selling us right now. I think I think I would read it more that way if the last shot of Don wasn't him smiling like while meditating, like very much commun- trying to communicate inner peace. Um, and I'm not saying that has to be what they're trying to say, but I feel like I would have to have. I would have the sh- want the show to end on a sort of darker note than him 
sitting happily on a hill meditating and smiling like that to me is not saying look this character is going to keep suffering i think you need him meditating and smiling and finding a moment of peace to then subvert it with like we're going to literally end on a commercial that is taking what was once kind of like a pure like movement and co-opting it to sell like a sugar drink you know so i think sure i think there's something interesting there about like oh is he finally kind of finding himself or finding some peace in in his mind and then it's like immediately cut to big corporation co-opting like a youth movement i will agree though with brian that it completely works like subtextual symbolically all those things but just watching it through the first time it was not what i was expecting or what i wanted and it, it didn't work for me until i had to access those deeper layers and it's like okay sure i okay Two plus two equals this, and I get it, and that's right. And that's that's cool when the show does that, and the show does that really well. It's just sometimes I feel like it's operating on like all three levels all at once. Like I think that's what the carousel episode is so cool with. Like during that presentation, it's like on the surface, like we see in the video, on the surface he's doing his thing, he's selling it, but beneath that, there's all these other meanings happening. It's all happening together, and I agree that like there was a little bit of disappointment or like a letdown feeling for me during that last moment where I was like, oh, okay, he's, he's smiling, it's good. And then, wait, what's this co-commercial? I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. But it, it, it took work to arrive at the meaning of it, which is fine. It's just sometimes it, it all happens together in a magical moment, which is nice. Yeah. I do think that maybe some of the, you know, if I were to revisit some of the episodes that I was like kind of glazing over for, maybe they were doing that thing where it's like, they're doing like an interesting symbolic thing or they're doing an interesting subtext thing but like the surface story isn't that compelling to me in that moment or like this actual interaction these two characters i'm just not into and i think there's a lot of scenes where like revisiting stuff for this video i was like okay i can see how like all these scenes have these layers of subtext and layers but just on the first watch through just watching it as like a story I was bored to tears during this scene. And so it's it's just interesting how like it, it kind of relies sometimes on that subtextual level as like the meat of the thing. That's why the first seasons are great to have on while you're playing a game of civilization. It's like the perfect, it's the perfect like but marriage like, of wait, like, so like how did you even appreciate it though if you weren't like watching it? Because I feel like so much of it is like in like the facial expressions and the silences and how do you get how do you pick up on that stuff if you're playing a game? I mean, the silences and the dialogue, all of that is like, I feel like you can concentrate on it more even sometimes, depending on the kind of game that you're playing. That's why I'm not saying like, like you can't, just, <laughs> can't be playing like Halo or something, but like a game where it's like, it's kind of occupying that kind of your frontal lobe or whatever the hell. It's just like, okay, I need my monkey brain needs to be like twirling a pencil in my head so I can actually deeply like tune mm -hmm. into this thing. I feel like it's the perfect marriage for that, where it lets you deeply tune in and get rid of that part of your voice that's like, oh, I'm kind of bored because I want, you know, the dramatic question of Breaking Bad or something that's like entertaining me in this moment. It kind of silences that part of your brain. so You can deeply connect just like the deeper levels. Of so it's, it's okay that Betty is riding a horse for the third episode in a row. Right, exactly. <laughs> the movies and television that I appreciate the most are the ones that are operating on a very sophisticated level. 
that are trusting the audience to engage it on a very sophisticated level. Mad Men is not here to hold your hand. It's not here to teach you history. It's not here to walk you through a melodrama about this guy who, you know, although even the plot points do get a bit melodramatic in places, <laughs> there's an actual like mistaken identity plot. And there's so much sex and infidelity and drinking and, and shenanigans. Workplace shenanigans in Mad Men are some of the best uh, episodes for me. <laughs> insane shenanigans. There are. Yeah. But that's not what the show really is. At its heart, the show is really this psychological, very slowly paced psychological exploration of our relationship to capitalism, consumerism, the forms and modes that we use to shape our lives. All of that is really deep and complicated. And it's where the show like exists fundamentally. And it's, I mean, I would be so curious to hear from listeners from other countries, like what this show means to you. Because to me, there's something so American about it where it's so specifically discussing consumerism and these different cultural movements through like it's it's in America and in the heart of like American culture in New York City. But that's where like culture is manufactured for the rest of the country. And so right. we see how the effects of the people in on Madison Avenue and what they ended up changing about the way that Americans saw themselves. And so. I would love to hear from someone who, uh, A, I would love to hear from someone who was alive then. And, and they had a lot of consultants on the show that actually worked on Madison Avenue and were very familiar with this world. But also from someone who isn't American, what does this, this piece of culture mean to you? Or what does this, um, what does this exploration of how we and media theorists have been wringing their hands about this basically since TV was invented or like modern advertising, like mid 20th century American advertising, which is what this show looks at, have been wringing their hands about how does media and advertising shape the way that Americans see themselves, not just out on the streets or on film or whatever, but in their own homes and in their own bedrooms. What are the stories that we tell about ourselves that shape our lives? And I feel like that's the exact thing that Don Draper's story is interacting with. What does being born and being raised in a whorehouse say about his life that so much so that he needed to actually kill that person and take someone else's identity and shape a life that was more aesthetically pleasing? What about American culture made him do that? and made him feed into that cycle. I think that's incredibly fascinating. And the show is about that for my money. Really quick. That was all brilliant. Did he actually kill the person or did they just die from a bomb? And then he took his like dog tags. It's his fault. Okay. I forget. Exactly. I feel like it's more like a metaphorical killing of his old self. I feel like it's probably more, but getting (laughs) all of subtext. (laughs) Well, he drops his lighter is the thing, which is also very thematic with like smoking and, Right. Self-destruction and self-harm, which this show is also about. Yeah, I mentioned uh, Death of a Salesman, and I think that there is this sort of thing that comes out of 50s and 60s culture, which is this just very heavy determination of who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed mm-hmm. to present yourself and what is expected of you. And I'm very glad that we are not too heavily in that these days. Really? 
Yeah. Well, most of us. Um, <laughs> I think we're getting better. Yeah, I think, Overall, that's what I, I think it's a lot I better than the 60s. Yeah. 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 But I mean, this sort of sense of like at at certain age, you must have this job and you must be married and you must go to this school. And, you know, if you there's sort of this hierarchy of where people are in their social status and maybe I'm just not around those people, but uh, I'm glad that we don't really have that anymore. But what I was going to say is that I appreciate that you have these sort of three generations of this character dealing with this in Pete, Don, and Roger. Um, mm-hmm. where, yes, yes, yes. Where Pete is sort of this puppy dog who is trying as hard as he can to be everything that like this lifestyle so transparently allows. Right. It's like, it's like, oh, if I can go sleep with somebody, I'm going to go do that. And I'm excited, you know? And then you have, uh, the other end of the spectrum, Roger, who this is just old hat to him. And he's sort of he's like been through it so much. He is now in a full relationship with another person who is not his wife and like is kind of <laughs> happy in that relationship almost. And then in the middle, you have Don, who is sort of stuck between these things of really trying to figure out who he is, but also appreciating the, for lack of a better word, perks of this lifestyle. <laughs> and I think it's just interesting to have these three different white male takes on this what these expectations of of this decade and bert i would say four generations because bert really represents like an even older take on that same thing that, cooper yeah 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 that in very many ways i mean literally in the show kind of has mentored and fathered roger because it's roger's father that helped to found the firm with bert mm-hmm. cooper and then like bert cooper basically helped raise roger in it and so, yeah, you see these. And then with Sally Draper, I think even down, like another generation down, we're starting to see how that same thing manifests. I think for me, I always read Cooper as someone who is more comfortable in his own skin. He's he's like, I can wear a pink bow tie to work if I want to, because I don't care. <laughs> and I, I've never read him as somebody who feels like he is as concerned with appearances the way that the other three are. And I feel like maybe that is a product of his age where yeah. like, the world yeah. that he... He's evolved. Yeah, simpler in some ways. I do. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Sally just because like Kiernan Shipka, I feel like Mm -hmm. comes into her own so hard across this like the show. She's so tiny in the first season. (laughs) So it's the same actress through the whole thing? It's the same actress. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, she's like a child actor. It's like, okay, that's you're, you're doing good. But then by the end. You know, in the last episode, she's talking to Don, and I'm like, dude, she's the grown up here. Yeah. Like, right? yeah. She's right, yeah. owning your face right now. <laughs> like, yeah, she's just so great. She yeah. is owning your face. Yes. No, it is interesting, too, because you are starting to get a hint of, um, without diving too much into the gender roles that are explored throughout the series, which I think are a huge part of it. Um, but it is a very deep rabbit hole that we could go down into that. Sure. But I do think having Don, Don's oldest child be a girl and having his this relationship with his daughter and seeing the way that she is growing up and just not buying any of it in the way that so many really young people in the 60s were, you know, it's interesting that the show in so many ways ends up being about how people evolved during the 60s. But you know who, again, you know who doesn't evolve? Don Draper. Mm-hmm. Everybody around him is growing and changing and, and something else is happening in their lives and they're they're forming new relationships and breaking up with people. And Don is super not able to do any of that, no matter how hard he tries. He tries to do new things. He falls back into old forms. 
he keeps wearing that damn suit, even though nobody else <laughs> is wearing anything close to the, what they were wearing at the beginning. Right. And he keeps ordering his old fashions, which I see you, Mad Men writers. It's hey. very on the nose as a drink for someone who can't change. But... Right. <laughs> They're also delicious. They really are. <laughs> fair and fair. But I do think it's interesting where Sally becomes this very poignant juxtaposition about somebody who is really going to change, not the artificial change where you're just looking for what new thing is happening so I can sell it. Somebody who's truly looking for a way to get off the ride. And Sally is a great example of that. Even when you see her like acting out and she's like smoking with her mom and whatever, she still is becoming wiser and more mature and more aware of herself and what she wants for her life than anybody who's like caught up in this like corporate rat race really is. You know, it's, it's funny because I remember seeing around LA like billboards and bus ads for the later seasons and they started to take on this like psychedelic quality and it was like, you know, the sixties mm-hmm. are flourishing. Right. And I was like, Oh man, like I, I want to watch this part of the show. Cause I want to watch the Don Draper world, like fall apart. Like that was exciting to me. And I think, I think, yeah, the only reason I kind of couldn't make it through was like, I didn't, I wasn't interested enough to stay in that, the like stifled world for as long as it was there. But I'm actually, I, I am encouraged now to go back and watch and maybe skip ahead a little bit. And just, I really want to see that how the show handles the transition into the late sixties. Cause that is very exciting to me. And I'm very interested in that historical moment and watching these characters go through that. Uh, I got a preview of it, just watching the finale and, the suitcase, those definitely were enthralling me in a way that some of the earlier seasons weren't because I just was less interested in stewing yeah. in that like previous generation. Yeah. One of the last things I want to talk about and just bring up is that one of the things I like about the show is the exploration of advertising for, you know, all the symbolic like reasons that we've talked about, but also because I, I find advertising really fascinating because I mm-hmm. feel like it's, it's a not too distant cousin from filmmaking. Like it's really, it's using all the same tools to manipulate an audience to have an emotional reaction while you're feeding them information. And can you put together the right little concoction in order to get them to do the thing or feel the thing that you want. And as Alex would say, in order to buy your product. (laughs) Right. Which is exactly right. And, and I think that's just the, the kind of extra candy on top in some ways that, Despite exploring all these things, the show is also about creativity. And, you know, we've talked about sitting with a problem before in the podcast. And like a lot of my favorite episodes are Don Draper, you know, getting drunk and being awful to the world because he's sitting with this insolvable problem. And then by the end, somehow he's like figured it out. I right. don't condone that method. Really of healthy, really it, healthy writing right. modeled by this show. But it's that, you know, it's the obsessed artist thing, but it's kind of fun to see someone deal with these, these seemingly impossible and tractable creative problems that you have when writing or doing whatever creative thing that you're doing and seeing it portrayed in this way is just kind of like cathartic on just like an emotional level. So it's just another thing about the show that I find really fascinating is to watch and in some ways learn, I feel like there are really interesting lessons that you can take from, you know, ad campaigns and a lot of yeah. the great directors we have, like 
directed commercials, like started in commercials, started in music videos. And music videos are kind of just commercials. Like the 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 difference between but it's all, all storytelling, right? Exactly. There's there's useful lessons in all of that, which I find really fascinating. And if you're stuck, just drink more. Well, no, we do not <laughs> condone that here beyond the screenplay. There is a bit that Mad Men quite a lot actually plays into the trope of if you work on something enough and dive like deeply into yourself enough or brainstorm enough or drink enough or do enough speed <laughs> as they do. <laughs> Cocaine get, in the last episode. Yeah. Just get all the drugs in there. Enough like office shenanigans will somehow yield the answer to the problem. And I, I agree that writing is sitting with the problem. However, there are sometimes is not a way to solve it. Like, I just want to name that. I don't know, someone who's been in the writing process a lot lately on projects, like you don't get to sit with it forever. Sometimes you got to send it out the door and it's not perfect. Or sometimes like you sell them the thing and your pitch wasn't that great and it's maybe not your best work. And it's just maybe not your best work because we're not like, you know, most of us get to make well, most of us get to make zero masterpieces in our lives. But like, if you if you do somehow get the opportunity to sit with something long enough and people give you enough time and money and resources and whiskey to like get there enough, then you maybe only get to do that really once, you know, and um, or, or not very often. And, and the majority of what you make in your creative life is not going to be Don Draper level brilliant. For sure. And I feel like, again, as a cautionary we do not condone drinking and drug- <laughs> Substance Alco- <abuse. laughs> alcoholism as an answer to writer's block. <laughs> the true thing that I think I've talked about this before, but like portraying like, you know, if you're a writer and then you like get really drunk and like are terrible, then you'll find the answer. Like that's not just getting drunk is not actually going to like make you solve. So like it's yeah. I find don't, coffee can help don't more. Don't just do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Self-destructive behavior is still self-destructive <laughs> and will destroy things in your life and also will likely not yield the creative epiphany you right. hoped for. Exactly. <laughs> that is the message. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Trisha here. So over on Twitter, we've been having some hilarious conversations with listeners lately from people telling us how much they love midpoints. I mean, is it as much as Michael loves midpoints? No one else can love them as much as I do. I don't know. We have some listeners that are going to give you a run for your money. And um, people have recommended to me some more making of documentaries that I'm really excited to check out. And there's even one fan that set over an amazing piece of art that might have something to do with me and Alex and the Avengers and Civil War. Also, plenty of opinions about whose side they're on in this civil war. Right. And it's, a, it's an ongoing war. And which, and which of us is right, you know? This is what you're missing on Twitter, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so join us over on Twitter and social media. All of our handles and links to all of that is in the show notes. Help us settle this debate once and for all about how Alex is wrong. And we'll talk to you over there. <laughs> Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Mad Men? Alex, do you want to start us off? I think one thing I really appreciated revisiting the wheel uh, was tracking Betty's storyline and how it's mm-hmm. a, it was a great example in that episode of truly like a story being told entirely through subtext in the sense that it's about her realizing, like kind of coming to terms with Don's infidelity and confronting him about it without ever saying that to anybody. Uh, or, you know, she says it not to him. 
And it, every step of that journey, we track the beats in the video. Nobody's ever talking about what's actually going on, you know? So, and I think that was a really, right. really profound thing to realize. Wow, you can do a whole episode where like nobody ever actually says anything to the person that they're dealing with and yet like tell the story. So, you know, I, I've been ragging on Mad Men for maybe relying too much on subtext and having it all below the surface, but damn, it's really impressive to do that, you know, <laughs> to have a finale where she doesn't end up exploding at dawn and having this, you know, this big mm -hmm. ending, uh, which is the normal kind of route. But instead she talks to her therapist about knowing that he's cheating, knowing that Don is going to talk to her therapist, like, <laughs> yeah, which is more interesting. So yeah, kudos to them for doing that. For sure. Doing that thing. Yeah. Brian? So Trisha's original pitch was called Layers of Meaning. And I think that that is really my favorite thing about any art form is that what's on the surface is just the beginning of what's there. And, you know, so you have, as we talk about, like the text and the subtext, et cetera, but you have the what am I actually watching? And then below that, you have something like subtext, which is usually still pretty obvious. The first time you watch something, you still understand subtext and that kind of thing. And then you have things like symbols and motifs and image systems where you might pick it up the first time, but then maybe it's like the second time you watch a, a movie or a show where you're going, ah, I didn't realize like the first scene where I saw that thing, I didn't realize it was going to be a significant symbol throughout the course of this. And now I can appreciate it the second time through. And then you have the greater theme or philosophy of the piece, which sometimes you can watch something three or four times and still be working out what exactly it's trying to say or what it means to you personally and you're arguing with your friends about what it means and you watch it again five years later and now it means something kind of different to you than it means before but i think a good show or movie has to have all of those levels in order to to earn that kind of rewatchability and that feeling of something being full and not just oh what a cool story about a guy who does this it's every time you rewatch it you're now like sort of diving deeper into a new layer of what's there and i almost want to like make a chart for screenwriters to be like are all these things being represented in what you're writing and you know like on a sort of horizontal earth's crust like kind of level um <laughs> where you can sort of track like okay great i've had a cool idea about a guy who does this thing but then what's going on beneath that level and what's going on beneath that level and then what is the thing that when you watch it for the 10th time, you're going, you know what? I never really appreciated that. Yeah. Earth crust or like cake also was a thing I was I was thinking about. <laughs> where like the top layer is just the frosting and like you think that's what you want. But like really, I mean, actually, I usually actually do just want the frosting. But I feel like for the metaphor to work, it's like, you know, <laughs> you need the rest of the cake. And sometimes there's layers of frosting beneath that cake. There's multiple layers. <laughs> oh, okay. Taking it really far. Yeah. I've been thinking about Portal okay. a lot. The cake is a lie. I don't know. Sorry. Trisha. One thing that I wish we could have spent the whole video talking about, because it's what I pitched originally, was the, the use of symbols here that are borrowed from culture. Mm. And as well as symbols that are um, unique to this particular thing. But I think that what Mad Men does particularly well is take a symbol that already has a meaning in culture and then blend it with this sort of like internal meaning for the character. And so my, one of the most stunning examples in this is the story mm -hmm. of Lane Price and the Jaguar car, which the Jaguar car has this 
like cultural. It's a sports car. Um, it's notoriously unreliable as a car. And so it has this cultural meaning of like being fast and shiny and pretty, but like ultimately kind of unreliable. It's got this midlife crisis sort of phenomenon built into it as a cultural symbol. So when Lane is failing at his job um, and his wife buys him a Jaguar, there's an irony to that because it represents like success and it's fast and shiny and it like, you know, um, but then the show goes a step further and is like, but also it's unreliable. So it's a symbol of like failure and Lane is failing at that time. And so then he uses the Jaguar to try to take his own life and it stalls and he like, can't actually even use it to kill himself, which is just the pinnacle of what it is to, to create this blended symbol sort of in the way that I'm talking about where he's chasing this dream and the dream itself is unreliable. He has failed at it. And then he fails at even like ending his pursuit of the dream by trying to use the same symbol. It's just, it's really brilliant. Um, and the show is full of things like that. In the video, we mentioned Pete's rifle, you know, which is loaded with cultural meaning about masculinity and and how Pete is so emasculated throughout this series. But um, there's there's lots and lots of of different examples of that. I love that episode where Betty is like shooting the pigeons mm-hmm. uh, that are her next door neighbor. She's taking back some control, right? Like taking on the role of a hunter. All of it is really cleverly observed. And it's so obvious that in the writer's room, there were people examining these symbols from every direction. Not just what does this like mean on the surface, but like what can it mean for the characters and uh, pulling it in. So. Yeah, even things like the way that hotels and hotel rooms are used in this, where there's often this uh, dismissal of like frivolousness to like affairs that take place in hotel rooms. And then when Don leaves his company, like he leaves his marriage, he goes to a hotel room to like set up a new company. Like, I see you, madman, <laughs> you're doing it. Like, you are taking these things that have internal meaning to the show as well as cultural meaning and creating something new out of them or, uh, or inviting us to consider what they might mean on a deeper level. Yeah. And I think the, that's awesome. And I think the very important thing there is that you try when you can to build it into the text of the story itself, that these things are important because sometimes I right. think nowadays we're seeing a lot of things that are based on the current style of the world, the current status quo. And it's like, okay, but in 20 years, are people going to understand that this thing meant that thing? The nice thing about making a show that took place 50 Mm. years ago is that you can do the math and say what was important then that is still important now or what meant something, you know, until we find a cure for bullets, like guns are always going to mean the same thing to us. Right. But I think that it's, it's important to make sure that it's like, as soon as a character says, this car represents status, then it's like, cool, I can watch this car do things all day. But in 100 years, someone watching may not know what a Jaguar means to these characters. And I think whenever possible, try to actually uh, insert that into the text of your of your story. Yeah, I think one of the the coolest examples of this to me uh, that reminds me when you're talking, Brian, is so there's that episode where they're like, they get those injections and they're all on speed basically. And there's that crazy like overnight episode where, or they're, they're all weekend, I guess, but time is like all blurred. Uh, it's a really cool bottle episode, but 
the very last line of that episode is, I think it is the last line of the episode. Don says something along the lines of, whenever we get a car, this place turns into a whorehouse. <laughs> and it's amazing because it's loaded with internal meaning within the show. Because last time they got a car, Joan literally had to sleep with, like literally had to sleep with someone in order to get that deal. Right. So there's that. But then also Don's childhood, it like also comes from this place of um, selling, right? Selling people as a commodity and this sort of wrestling that he does with, or that the show really does with like what it is to be ethical right. with people in terms of like sales. And so I don't know, just there's, there's those examples where the show is consciously referencing a couple of different things within itself as well as something outside of the show. Yeah. And it's such a like uniquely Mad Men thing, like to be able to do yes. all of those things at once is, makes it special. It feels very literary almost. Like it feels like more like, it, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I think <laughs> this is so Trisha, you know, because it's, it's, it, it feels like we're talking about a novel right now. It, it's, right. It's, it's things that are usually more like richly woven into like great literature that aren't as common in like an AMC TV show, you know? So it's, yeah, but they yeah. should be. Mad Men is great literature. Alex says, yes. you heard it here first. <laughs> Michael, what's your lesson? Yeah, obviously tied into subtext and all that stuff. But I, I think, you know, facades and inner self and that juxtaposition is something that, you know, once I kind of was clued into that as a mechanic in storytelling, it just really resonated with me as a way of putting reality into a story in a way that is useful like not just this is my life and i'm going to write my autobiography and change the names and now it's like a real story like that's you know you don't want to i've done that you don't want to do that that doesn't make a good story but the idea that all of us have these like wounds and this vulnerability and these things that we're trying to protect and so we build a facade that specifically protects those things like the walls are built toward protecting those things yes and mad men is such a great example of that and then i think everything we've been saying about you know like you're saying trisha driving into the the moral shadow like don draper exists in that in between Mm -hmm. i feel like it's such a again on my ongoing quest to find good clear examples of this technique i feel like mad men is a great example of you can see everybody's facades you can see the vulnerability that they're trying to protect and what makes the show compelling to me is how they force the characters to occupy the space in between. And I just love mm-hmm. that about the show. They have custom built walls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. You can get your walls in any color. What vulnerability are you trying to hide? Yeah. Wish ghost. <laughs> Great. What have we been watching? Trisha. Well, so Elizabeth Moss. Um, I was on an Elizabeth Moss kick, obviously. Is cheat codes also? Can I just say Always. that? Always, yes. I want to add her amazing. to the list of cheat codes, people. Sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I saw Shirley, mm. which is the new movie by Josephine Decker, starring Elizabeth Moss, uh, Odessa Young, Michael Stuhlbarg, and uh, Logan Lerman, about Shirley Jackson, one of the great American authors who wrote a few, like I think she wrote two novels, but mostly like a lot of short stories. It's a historical movie, so I like it with a female lead, mm-hmm. uh, so I like it already. But it's a really, I just love how it's directed. It's gorgeous. Elizabeth Moss is amazing in it. 
it's a very quiet drama and it's very much just a study on the life of a writer and the way that she influences people around her. It has that like modern unhinged thing a little bit where like, it feels like all indie movies now have to have characters that don't even act like they're people. (laughs) Everything needs to be unhinged a bit in a way. Uh, But to me, there's a really big difference. I've seen a lot of, of indie movies that do that kind of just for the sake of doing it. I think it's a lot more interesting when it's saying something a little bit broader. And so this has a lot to do with like womanhood and like her marriage is sort of falling apart and this young couple comes to stay with them. And so it's sort of about how the much younger wife that is staying with her and and Shirley Jackson, the character, former relationship. It is absolutely not based in any sort of reality that I've been able to find about Shirley Jackson's life. She was notoriously reclusive and sort of a difficult person, but there's no record of like this young couple, at least as far as I can tell. Someone tweet at me if you know anymore, um, because I did look into it a little bit, but I, I just really, really like it. It's beautiful. And I like a movie that is quite obviously written, directed, and acted by women about women's experiences. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no way that the nuances of this movie exist with uh, someone who hasn't doesn't have the lived experiences uh, could possibly create. So awesome! Yeah, some of my favorite movies from 2019 have that same thing going on. Where I'm like, if I were writing the story, I never would have thought about that because I am a nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. Very cool. Brian? Uh, So I watched Just Mercy, the film by uh, Dustin Daniel Cretton, who also directed Short Term 12. Brie Larson is also in both movies. And it's uh, based on a true story. It stars Michael B. Jordan as Brian Stevenson. It's a Harvard lawyer who goes to Alabama and takes on the case of this man who was wrongly convicted of murder. That character is played uh, by Jamie Foxx. His name is Johnny D. And of course, it's all about him trying to reverse this conviction and uh, and find out what actually really happened, what evidence was real evidence and what was not. And then you have some great uh, smaller performances like um, Tim Blake Nelson and playing a very Tim Blake Nelson role. And uh, and it's just amazing performances. Jamie Foxx is fantastic. I am shocked that Tom Hanks is Mr. Rogers uh, was nominated for an Oscar and Jamie Foxx was not. Um, (laughs) And um, and then another actor, Rob Morgan, he plays um, another prisoner in Johnny D's cell block, uh, who is also dealing with the same situation. And his performance is absolutely incredible. I was just like stunned by his uh, his performance. So, yeah, check it out. Nice. I like Jimmy Fox. I feel like he's one of those like surprise people. Like when yeah. like, when collateral happened, it was like, wait, what? And then Ray, Jimmy Fox is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Alex, what have you been watching? So I've talked to Michael a lot about a book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Um, and it, it it's about mm-hmm. a subject I'm really interested in, which is the new science of psychedelics, because it's being studied for the first time since the 50s, basically, in clinical settings for treating like PTSD, depression, and also just like helping people generally. And the science is really nuts. And there's a whole chapter in that book about mushrooms and not just magic mushrooms, but just like the fungi family. And just that chapter in the book like blew my mind because we don't really know much about that. It's an entire kingdom. It's like, it's not even plants or animals. It's the fungi kingdom of species. And so there's, there's a documentary called Fantastic Fungi 
strangely uh, narrated by Brie Larson. <laughs> you, you just brought her up. <laughs> <laughs> she actually, it's funny, she kind of just comes in for bits of the movie to almost like speak as the voice of the like fungi kingdom. Uh, just like, <laughs> we do this, we are this. So it's, it's just funny to hear her. Yeah. Wow. It's a really, you know, it's a little bit of kind of like a, you know, hippie psychedelic documentary, but it's actually really beautifully done. It's actually got really cool graphics of just showing how uh, there's essentially this insane network under our feet everywhere of the fungal family where it's like the mushroom is like the sex organ of fungus that comes up above the ground to spore. But below the surface, like all plants are like connected by these like tendrils, like networks of fungi. It's basically really insane. And the, the documentary follows this guy named Paul Stamets, who's like the mushroom guy. Like he just was kind of like a self-made naturalist who just got obsessed with this family of species and uh, basically has like discovered new uses for different uh, mushrooms to like break down like trash and break down oil and like, you know, cured like diseases potentially. And it's just basically a really fascinating documentary about a thing that I think most of us don't know much about, which is just like, there's this weird thing on planet earth that is actually like really integral to like most habitats and is kind of unexplored because we just learned about plants and animals. And so highly recommended. I thought it was a great documentary as far as just being really enjoyable and really far reaching as far as exploring this weird thing that is like potentially like revolutionary if we can discover all its uses. So nice. If you like undersea monsters, Michael, I, I, don't, I don't like any of this, but <laughs> re- like, the uses is great. The science is interesting. Oh, and this and and the science is so fascinating. And like, and there's yeah. a whole section that yeah. was really interesting about um, the stoned ape theory. Has anybody heard of this? Basically, uh, in like Africa, in the place for like like the dawn of man, like one of the like predominant mushrooms that grows in like the feces of animals are magic mushrooms. And so, one of the theories is like human culture may have like co-evolved with like early man just getting super high off mushrooms <laughs> yeah i buy because, that because genuinely people uh you know when they do these studies of mushrooms uh, psilocybin the active ingredient magic mushrooms you create new ideas connect that wouldn't have otherwise connected so they're they're theorizing that like there's like ideas and you know language and forms could have maybe actually connected that wouldn't have otherwise because these early man were like co-evolving with these like weird things so yeah anyway it's yeah i'm just so into this subject <laughs> i could talk about it for days mushrooms also play a plot point in oh, all right to throw that right. out there tie it all together yeah i mean i, I thought about doing mushrooms but i'm already a fun guy <laughs> oh, no. thank you i thank you oh, i thank you oh my god <laughs> Michael, what have you been watching? Save us. So I uh, finally watched 13th, which is the 2016 documentary by Ava nice. Renee. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, parentheses, except for criminals. <laughs> you know, it came out several years ago and I'd kind of been like, oh, I should watch it. But I, I feel like I'm going to kind of already know all the things. And but so we sat down to watch it and. Overall, I feel like it, it wasn't a whole lot of things that were news to me. There were really interesting things that they they dived into in some more detail. Um, but it, but I feel like overall, what I liked about it is it it's kind of just like a systemic racism 101 <laughs> like <laughs> right. course where it's like, just sit down and watch this for like an hour and a half. And it kind of, you know, it doesn't 
go too much into any kind of like there are good people and bad people. It's just like, let's look at the systems and like the way the dominoes fell. And this is how we've gotten here. Right. Uh, so I really appreciated mm-hmm. that it took that approach to it. And it, it is just like a nice quick summary of here are all the things. So, yeah. So ultimately, I enjoyed it is the word I'm going to use. But sure, know, yeah. whatever the word is you use for that kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, 13th. Good. It's on Netflix. This has been our conversation on Mad Men. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to the patrons for supporting this podcast. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.